Um, well, okay, uh, we're a few minutes past. Uh, apologies for losing track there. We're going to go ahead and start today. Uh, first off, as always, thank all of you for coming to our ongoing reading of Anti-Oedipus with the Deleuze and Guattari Quarantine Collective. Uh, we're excited to have you today. The chat happens the same way. It happens every week. Uh, as we go through, uh, feel free to type away inside of the discussion chat live. It's the text chat just right above uh, our little little room here. Uh, and we will uh, be answering questions from there. If you actually have a question, ask to be unmuted. Uh, we do generally mute during this discussion just because we have a lot of background noise and we really want the recordings to come through. But you guys are happy to unmute yourselves. Ask a question, discuss things, make a point. Uh, the goal for us is not to have this be a top-down thing, but really for everyone to come in. And as you may have sort of gathered by some of the early discussions or the chatter in other areas, not everyone here is an expert. Do not think that there is such thing as a stupid question. You will hear me ask many, 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 many stupid questions. Uh, and we have some very smart people who can help answer it. And sometimes uh, I even get to answer a question or two. So uh, the goal is to have as many of you involved as possible. So don't hesitate to jump in. A bit of housekeeping. Um, we are looking again for more mods, more people to take on uh, talks. Uh, we are going to be setting up a new uh, reading group for Cinema 1 and 2, which is exciting. It's uh, one of my uh, personal favorites, so I'll be working on that. Um no, no winterice is asking if something is a stupid question, a stupid question. No. Uh, although asking if a stupid question is a stupid question is a stupid question. That is actually a stupid question. So uh, you, you've, you've done it. Uh, so we're, we're going to be setting up more talks uh, and we're really excited for uh, all of that. Do not hesitate um, to really uh, bring anything up. Um we have a few things happening in the next few weeks. Hopefully we get our zine out. Uh, it's been a, a, my back burner slowly being made. Uh, but don't, again, uh, if you want to be involved in anything, do not hesitate to jump out. Uh, with that, uh, we'll go ahead and say hi to all the admins and mods. How are all of you guys doing? Doing well. Good. Good. Uh, oh, hope, hope your headache's doing better, Kent. Sorry you have thank that. Thank you. Yeah, hello. Uh, I'm using a new microphone, so I don't know if it sounds better or worse. Uh, sounds much better. Okay. All right. That's good to hear. Yeah. Um, so uh, I'm going to go ahead and uh, uh, begin the reading of... Uh, um, I, I, I wrote a little uh, introduction. Ooh. To, uh, oh yes, yes. Uh, so I think for this chapter, what we really need to be, keep in mind is what they're doing. At least the only way their argument is going to make sense in this chapter is if we first uh, look at it on the background of everything else they've mentioned in the previous uh, paralogisms. So I thought I, I just have some notes that are just some. It's like a basic rundown of of everything. So I'll just uh, start reading them. So. Uh, so basically what, what paralogisms are is a transcendent use of the synthesis rather than an imminent use. And so the first one we get is the illegitimate use of the connective synthesis. So rather than local and non-specific connections, uh, the psychoanalyst implies global and specific connections. So they call this extrapolation. And essentially what this does is the creation of lack. It's the creation of so. One of Lacan's big theories was the idea of we're born with the lack, but rather for Deleuze and Guattari, it's created. So one example for this could be the 
the, what happens is with the global and specific connections is uh, these things turn into mythic objects, right? The phallus becomes the mythic object that creates lack. Oedipus becomes the mythic object of the representation creating lack. Then the second one, um, I'm, I'm using some examples from Ian Buchanan here, since he explains it a lot far better than I can, is the illegitimate use of the disjunctive synthesis. So they take this, uh, they take the double bind concept from Gregory Bateson, where Gregory Bateson was uh, found the double bind is what's in families that causes schizophrenia. The losing water, you're going to turn that in the head and say that the double bind is actually what causes a form of neurosis rather than schizophrenia. So, um, it's uh, exclusive and restrictive disjunctions rather than in inclusive and non-restrictive disjunctions. Then you get a despotic signifier in the code of the BD, uh, the body without organs. And then it's the cure rather than the disease that is the double bind. So if one doesn't resign themselves to the fate of castration and embrace the dictates of one's sex, then one is condemned to the proverbial dark night of the undifferentiated, the so-called polymorphic perplexity, which is Freud's term for childhood eroticism and which basically is it's sort of the sort of perversion right which knows neither subject nor object and then hence oedipus is a is, is a, it's a paradox and in some cases for the for who is it being inflicted on right it's both options that you have to escape it are both undesirable one must accept one's fate and find the means of coming to terms with the lingering anxieties of the choice all entails and in this way resolve the oedipus complex or else come in given to the fictitious uh, oedipal desires and thereby fall back into the hole of neuroses and social ostracism and then the third uh, the third paralogism we were given was the illegitimate use of the conjunctive synthesis and they described this as a segregative and by univocalization rather than nomadic and polyvocal so one example of this is the family is never a micro, microcosm, right? There was the story of the uncle who fought in Vietnam, the parents from May 68, the grandfather who was a Nazi, right? So children are surely not aware of the fact that the daddy has a boss who is not the father's father, or moreover, that their father himself is a boss who is not a father. So of course, psychoanalysis can't they can't account for these flows that go outside the family if they're going to keep it at the triangulation. Then the fourth one, I think this might arguably be the most important one for the losing lottery because this is essentially what almost um, it connects it to the idea that's happening in a social field. Uh, so it's the prohibition of incest representation. So, uh, you know, that the law says you shall not, uh, you, you, sh you should not, in, have intercourse with your with your mother and uh those all subjects basically says oh so that was my original desire so psychoanalysis was if uh, freud was there he would say that the reason for the prohibition was people wanted to commit incest as their real desire and then social repression blocked them the losing water are going to shift this on their head they're going to say that it was actually social repression at the beginning and it was psychic repression that was it was social repression that caused psychic repression and very simply, the role of psychic repression is to teach us to desire social repression. So you get, so if psychic repression is to teach you to desire social repression, right? Why did the masses desire fascism? That's that question being answered there. You're going plugging it back into the social field. And the basic, the basic movement of the prohibition of incest, right, is by placing the disordering mirror of incest before desire. Desire is shamed, stupefied. It is placed in a situation without exit. It is easily persuaded to deny itself in the name of a more important interest of civilization. What if everyone did the same? What if everyone married his mother? 
or kept his sister for himself. There would no longer be any differentiations, any exchange possible. That's just a quote from page 142. And now what we're getting into is we're getting into this key aspect that um, it's also it also has some aspects of their understanding of their critique of Marxism to a certain degree, in the sense that under capitalism, there's a big distinction between uh, social production and desiring production, which is left to the family. And that's uh, that, that's that's the divide that they're going to talk about what basically causes uh, their second critique of representation to come to mind. How it's this divide that essentially turns Oedipus into this sort of even further mythic figure, right? You're... Uh, there's a great joke in the opening to chapter four where they talk about the, chi- the, the chicken and the egg, right? That the father, the, the psychoanalysis will say that the what comes first, the father or the child. For psychoanalysis, it's the child that comes first. You're trapped in your childhood. And that's basically what this chapter is about to a certain degree. And I know, uh, thank you very much, Rune. That was great. And for anyone who's not necessarily following all of it, we're actually going to, I think, uh, be going over all of those points at some point in this chapter because all of that gets re-referenced and we'll be able to explain a lot more of the specificities so uh before we move on i do want to touch on a few of the questions that we're getting in chat uh alyosha says so the lack is created by identifying global and specific connections we are disconnected from whereas local and non-specific uh, mean as a place disconnection never comes into play. Uh, Varun, feel free to correct me on that, but I think that's actually spot on. Uh, that uh, the the global and specific connections, uh, as soon as we're made aware that we are disconnected from them, uh, that is the moment of lack. Varun, I mean, I think the key thing with lack is that when you've specified, right, it's sort of that thing. It's like what Plato talks about acquisition, right? It's that idea that you create some sort of objet petit thoughts that it's when you, when you restrict it to one locale, you've basically created some mythical object and that mythical object is what causes lack. Well, and speaking of mythical objects, uh, big chungus asks, is it the case that psychoanalysis can only work with one definition of family or at the point of broadening family? Should we then just negate Oedipus at this point? And I think, uh, their their earlier talks, as they spoke about it, is not so much that Oedipus doesn't exist. Uh, it's that Oedipus is not the end-all, be-all shape that things have to take the form of. Uh, that there is some level of uh, effect that it has, but that um, we've basically mythologized it so deeply that it becomes the first thing in the grab bag of tools that a psychoanalyst would jump into. And by doing so, you've the double bind that Varun was just speaking of, you're forcing upon your patient. Either they accept uh, this very specific box that you've put them inside of, which means they're going to have significant uh, neuroses and psychoses, actually today's talk, or uh, they have to admit to you that they just can't be fixed. And that's an awful thing uh, for a human to admit. So that, uh, that problem is pretty significant, that double bind. Um, then, uh, so I, I'd like to go ahead and uh, start reading. And as we go, um, I think, uh, Varun, uh, that intro was great. Uh, as we go, if you could maybe point out, I'm trying to figure out how we, how we integrate it because I think uh, I'm not the only person who some of that stuff did go over my head and it, as it has in the chapters, as we've read it. So I know it connects into here. So let's make sure we bring that up as we go. Cool. All right. I'm going to go ahead and uh, give a read start then. Uh, 
1924, Freud proposed a simple criterion for distinguishing between neurosis and psychosis. In neurosis, the ego obeys the requirements of reality, instead ready to repress the drives of the id. Whereas in psychosis, the ego is under sway of the id, ready to break with reality. Freud's ideas often took quite some time before making their way into France. Not this one, however. That same year, Capgras and Caret presented a case of schizophrenia with a delusion of doubles, where the patient manifested a strong hatred for her mother and an incestuous desire for her father, but under conditions of reality loss, where the parents were lived as false parents, or doubles. From this, they drew the illustration of the inverse relationship. In neurosis, the object function of reality is preserved, but on condition that the causal complex be repressed. In psychosis, the complex invades consciousness and becomes its object. At the price of a repression that now bears on reality itself or the function of the real. Doubtless, Freud was merely insisting on the schematic character of the distinction, for the rupture is also found in neurosis, with the return of the repressed, hysterical amnesia, obsessional cancellation. While in psychosis, a regaining of reality appears along with the delirious reconstruction. The fact remains that Freud never dropped this simple distinction. And it seems important that, following an original path, Freud encounters again an idea dear to traditional psychiatry, that madness is fundamentally linked to the loss of reality. Thus, there is a convergence with the psychiatric elaboration of the notions of dissociation and autism. Hence the reason, perhaps, for the rapid diffusion that the Freudian account enjoyed. Yeah, uh, we're going to actually keep reading um, uh, because it's it's a couple paragraphs before we get into something that's really worth discussing. They were just simply going over Freud and, and some sort of basic psychoanalysis. Uh, what interests us is the precise role of the Oedipus complex in this convergence. For if it is true that the familial themes often erupt into the psychotic consciousness, we would be all the more surprised. In line with a remark by Lacan, if Oedipus were in fact discovered in neuroses, where it is supposed to be latent, rather than in psychosis, where it is held to be patent. But isn't it true instead that in psychosis, the familial complex appears precisely as a stimulus whose quality is a matter of indifference? A simple inductor, not playing the role of organizer, where the intensive investments of reality bear on something totally different, the social, historical, and cultural fields? Oedipus simultaneously invades consciousness and dissolves into itself, testifying to its incapacity to be an organizer. Um, all right. I, think, I think that idea about organizer is specifically hearkening off that notion of the body without organs, where Oedipus uh, acts as that basic main spot where so much control occurs, right? It's uh, yes. Well, they they talk about it early on, almost as if it was uh, the mold or the the triangulation that things have to be encased by. Uh, every time they were describing it earlier, I was thinking of uh, molds that you put play doh into, and then you just sort of chop off the excess, uh, and then you make the imprint, and then suddenly everything is edible. No matter what you put inside of it, it fits that setup. And that that concept of an organizer, they've talked about quite a bit. Um, and Jack's uh, a good point as well. Uh, the second synthesis where Oedipus replaces God, uh, the source of the Newman, is also something that they have talked about. So, uh, 
again, a lot of their focus uh, through this, this chapter, all of these things, is really the concept that Oedipus not necessarily doesn't exist, but that it isn't the end-all, be-all, uh, the body without organs, if you will, uh, of, of uh, psychoanalysis. Everything is sort of pushed back into it. Um, I've, I've, at some point, we are actually going to have to discuss the body without organs. There's very specific chapters coming up, and it's going to be great. It's going to be long. It's going to be so, so long. Can I just ask, so just, I know this is, might be a very specific point they're trying to make, but when they, they say this thing about Lacan, and they say that we would be surprised if Oedipus were discovered in the neuroses rather than in psychosis, where it's supposedly like patent and more explicit. So are, are they saying there that their traditional or even Lacanian psychoanalysis, is is there a contradiction there that they're observing that like... Whereas you see familial themes coming up in psychosis all the time, they still somehow place the primacy of it in, the, in I guess, whatever you term as neurosis. Is that what they're saying? So, uh, the I'm, I'm not an expert on Freud, uh, so take everything I say. Um, well, no, we're, we're not going to have the discussion about God being the body without organs quite yet, Faroon. Um, because that's a whole thing, and I'm going to have to debate with you on that too. Um, the the nature of uh, neurosis versus psychosis in the original definition, and they open the chapter with it, is that uh, in neurosis, the ego obeys the requirements of the reality and stands ready to repress drives of the id. Uh, this uh, is where uh, uh, Oedipus is latent. Uh, it's 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 assumed. Whereas with psychosis, uh, the ego basically is. Uh, performative underneath the id at the whims of those drives uh and so therefore uh is patent is is something that is more uh, uh directly appealing Be because of that though that that distinction they're sort of laughing well what if actually we found out that oedipus does fit inside of one and actually not the other that that suddenly would completely undo uh uh uh, all of that, and that's where, that's their joke that they ask at the end of this paragraph. Uh, but isn't it true that in psychosis, the familial complex appears precisely as a stimulus whose quality is a matter of indifference, an inductor that does not play the role of organizer, where the intensive investments of reality bear on something totally different? They're making the point that uh, Oedipus itself is not the thing that drives a person towards psychosis or uh, neurosis, but instead actually a number of societal factors outside things. Uh, historical, cultural fields, all of those things. Varun, is that a fair reading? Um, again, I, I'm not super well read in psychoanalysis, so I'm not going to say yes or no to any of this. Yeah, but... no, it's 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 a tough one because uh, I'm I'm not super voiced in Freud. I've got a decent reading of Lacan. Um, but you know, it's it's like you go to the analyst and you, the way you start telling them, basically, I mean, the way the analyst reads the unconscious it, it is it doesn't begin with Oedipus. So you gradually start telling them, like your story, but Oedipus almost comes from the future. But Oedipus comes from this almost timeless space, right. and it comes and and it, it's integrated back into your past, right? It's integrated back into your childhood. The in this phrasing, the words patent and latent uh, mean opposing things. Uh, patent is something that is observable from outside of uh, the thing that it's involved in. So in this case, uh, if Oedipus is patent inside of the triangulation of family uh, as it should be inside a psychosis it's something that's completely observable as soon as the id uh, puts the ego underneath it in theory 
uh, you should absolutely be able to very, very clearly see uh, sort of where the Oedipal complex comes in. Whereas if the ego is uh, superlative to the id, uh, it's much more of a latent connection. And that latent connection means that there's a lot more digging that has to be done because it's not a ver- invariably clear to the outside. Uh, does that make more sense, Alyosha? Yeah, I guess. So are you saying that it's not even that they're saying that the themes are actually pa- patent in uh, psychosis, but that the function Oedipus serves in psychosis could be is, just a, is is just as latent, I guess, as it is in, in neurosis in that it's just an inductor. It's not an organizer. Is that the point? Correct. Yeah, that's that's the correction they're making, because in traditional thought, uh, any in traditional thought it would be patent they're saying well what if it's not and at that moment it's like oh no there's all these other things that are inductors that are actually influencing these situations um yes it's absolutely what you just said so it's not an organizer but an inductor so i hope um i got to repeat my point and it made more sense this second time because it didn't make sense as i was saying it the first time um but with that we should move on to the next uh, chapter who'd like to give this a read All right, I'll continue. Once this is admitted, it is enough to measure psychosis against this fake standard. Enough to lead it to a false criterion. Oedipus, to obtain the loss of reality effect. This is not an abstract operation. An Oedipal organization is imposed on the psychotic, though for the sole purpose of assigning the lack of this organization in the psychotic in his very body. It is an exercise in naked flesh, in the depths of the soul. The psychotic reacts with autism and the loss of reality. Could it be that the loss of reality is not the effect of the schizophrenic process, but the effect of its forced oedipalization, that is to say, its interruption? Must we correct that we were saying a little earlier, and suppose that some tolerate oedipalization less well than others? Thus the schizo would not be ill within the Oedipus complex, from an Oedipus arising all the more in his hallucinated consciousness, as he lacked it in the symbolic organization of his unconscious. On the contrary, he is ill, because of the Oedipalization to which he is made to submit. The most somber organization, and which he can no longer tolerate, he who has gone on a distant journey, as though there were one const- as though one were constantly bringing back home the person capable of setting whole continents and cultures adrift. He is not suffering from a divided self or a shattered Oedipus, but on the contrary, from having been brought back to everything he had left. A drop in intensity to the body without organs equals zero autism. The schizo has no other means of reacting to this blocking of all his investments of reality. The barriers placed before him by the Oedipal system of social and psychic repression. As Lang says, they are interrupting. They are interrupted in their journey. They have lost reality. But when did they lose it? During the journey or during the interruption of the journey? Um, so this is, uh, I, I think, this is exactly what they were talking about in the first two pages of the book. When uh, they give that example of D.H. Lawrence saying schizophrenia is like love. And if you stop the process, uh, the end of the process is what produces the autistic rag, which is almost, it's, it's, so when you think about the clinical schizophrenic, right? I mean, so again, this is also sort of proof to any of those people who are all like, oh, the losing guadri or romanticizing schizophrenia, right? This is sort of proof that that's bullshit, right? Because uh, what, what they're saying here is that when you 
when you stop the schizophrenic process, one way to think about the process, that's the process of desiring production, right? One great example of the process is the table. The, the fact that the schizophrenic table is, is always being the, the, the you don't reach a finished end identity product. You never reach to some product. It's always a process that that produces the table into something that, you know, doesn't look like a table anymore. It's just a grotesque mess of a table. And you don't ever get your product identity. It's only with the body without organs that you get the product identity. But uh, with the schizophrenic process, you're just producing, right? Think of Judge Schraber's soul, uh, stroll, where he's just making connections with celestial machines and stuff. And what they're talking about here is that this is this is when we think about the almost traditional definition of the schizophrenic, like that terrifying process or the those almost zombies in mental asylums, right? This is what they're talking about with the idea of the f- falling back on the full body without organs, which is the zero degrees of intensity and z- uh, zero enjoyment, and having all the connections short circuited. That's uh, that's what what the almost clinical understanding of schizophrenic looks like for Deleuze and Guattari, in my opinion. Actually, that's, I think, a really nice summary of this section. Uh, I'm going to try to shorten it a little bit. Um, They're talking throughout this section, uh, as they've been discussing, about the lack of Oedipus to actually be an organizer of thought. Uh, Instead, it's uh, something that basically cuts off desiring, cuts off everything that it comes in contact with. And the schizophrenic is that who responds to this by... uh, basically transferring himself into a completely different way of operation. And it's the schizo would not be ill within the Oedipus complex from an Oedipus arising all the more in his hallucinated consciousness as he lacked it in the symbolic organization of his unconscious. On the contrary, he is ill because of the Oedipalization he is made to submit uh, by telling him what he desires, by telling him how his brain actually works. We've made it worse. Such a, it's, it's just such a really sort of nice point. I feel like I, I was saying in the chat, I feel like I've seen this in people I've worked with. And, you know, without getting into details, I suppose, there's uh, some clients I've worked with who've gone through these kinds of episodes and had a very long process with them. But I remember visiting one in the, like a hospital unit where they had been sort of hospitalized after they had been fully medicated. And it was a very weird, like, bittersweet moment because for the first time I had seen them acting you know what what I would understand as normally but it was I mean just to be crude about it it was sort of the most classic example of how to just you know feed someone with pills and medicalize them and kind of it, it wasn't a person I recognized anymore and it, it's quite an interesting way to think about that of like bringing them arresting their development and them being unable to express these desires and organize them in a sensible way and having to just sort of box that in to the point where they, they become, at least in my experience, uh, this person uh, a barely recognizable shell of themselves. And then sort of saying, well, this person's cured now. It's, it's a, a quite compelling way to think about it, I think. Big Chungus again with a good question. At some point, we're going to need you to change your name to your real name. Um, but uh, they are somewhat saying Oedipus is a social organizer and not a psychic organizer. I think that's. Uh, I think that's okay to be inferred here. Um, I I don't know if they would say it's necessarily a social organizer, but instead, uh, uh, what is the phrasing that they very specifically use? Um, uh, Inductor. Not playing the role of organizer where the intensive investments of reality bear on something totally different. And yeah, we get into uh, 
that in chapter three. Chapter three is basically, this is all foundational stuff. So that way we don't have to go back over this in chapter three. It's why we're spending so much time on this because chapter three is going to have to assume it gets a lot more poetic and it's going to assume that everyone here has a better understanding of everything we're talking about. So that's why we're taking a lot of time over a lot of these more difficult points. Uh, Roots. Yes. Could I interject real quick? I, I think I kind of understand what they're talking about in terms of uh, Freudian psychoanalysis and the, they're talking about uh, reality specifically here. Please. So, uh, in in Freud, there are um, so I believe this is civilization's discontents. Freud talks about the the reality principle and these sort of like the um, the pleasure principle, which is more libidinal. And so, effectively, what's supposed to happen is um, there's an id and an ego, and the id knows that it wants things and it has a desire. And it doesn't really understand reality. It's simply operating on the pleasure principle. And so, like, the id will say, like, hungry. And the, the person will be like, oh, yeah. So, like, um, I'll get some cardboard, right? What's supposed to happen is the ego brings in the reality principle to tell the id, oh, no, 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 you don't want the cardboard. You want the breast. And this is an example the losing lottery have used, right? So what's, what Freud is saying, um, or at least what Deleuze and Guadri are referencing here, is like that's how Freud is understanding the neurotic, which, if I'm not mistaken, is sort of where everybody is in psychoanalysis who can be, um, who can be cured, right? As they have this, um, they have this id operating according to the pleasure principle, and an ego with a mitigating reality principle, and so like alternatively, the psychotic for Freud is somebody whose ego just serves the id, right? So the, the id says hungry, and the, the ego would say rots, which is the example that uh, they give in the first chapter of Malone. Although whether or not it's hunger is debatable, but you get the basic idea. So part of what they're getting at here, right, is like, for Freud, the psychotic, if he's going, if they are going to be cured, has to be made into a neurotic. And they have to operate according to this principality and according to the pleasure and reality principles more directly. Um, in terms of the schizophrenic and what Deleuze and Guadagno have been laying out in this book, right? So we've seen that this idea of the psychotic, um, even in the example of Malone I just gave, doesn't quite work for them. And it's going to change the way we're thinking about uh, it. I, I would I would take it a step further. A lot of what they're talking about when it comes to how Oedipus and things in general, because I've, I'm taking sort of their conception of how Oedipus affects things to also uh, their work in deference or repetition. And I'm rereading cinema to prepare for our talks. Um, they, they talk about things as being uh, moments. <laughs> the way an event affects the world is uh, prior to something being impossible, we just can't imagine it. Once that thing happens. Uh, it retroactively actually makes its contingent event status completely possible. An uh, example would be 9-11. 9-11 is not a thing we could have imagined months leading up to it. Now we can imagine everything much worse, and how could people never see it? Uh, the, uh, tragedy does this a lot. 
uh, literature does it. Uh, you know, they wrote books on Kafka, Deleuze and Guattari um, for the same reason that Kafka created his own genre and redefined literature ultimate, ultimately. So if we're talking to someone who is uh, who has mental illness of any sort, let's say a schizo, but let's say anyone and they go, they have problems and they go to the psychoanalyst, they go in. Most people not knowing what Oedipus is, not knowing really what their problems are. They have this free temporality. And so their ability for that and that analysis to go, well, here's what your problems are. It's a you're fuck, you want to fuck your mom, you want to kill your dad. And these are the things going on. That moment, essentially, yes, the psych, psychoanalyst essentially colonizes that person's mind with uh this is how your brain works and they go oh fuck that's how my brain works and because of that you know they take that moment and they begin trying to place everything they can inside of it the schizophrenic's not able to because that's not how it fucking works oedipus sucks for putting all this stuff that's in your brain inside of it and so it breaks everything and sends everything in different directions and that's uh what they're talking about here this uh, this this ability for Oedipus to not be an organizer. It's it's not the event. It's it's the tragedy. It's the shattering of uh, how your brain can work. And that by switching everything to Oedipus, you're forcing your patients to uh, realign their entire prism of life. And it makes things much, much worse. Yeah, it's, uh, one way I like to visualize this is uh, the triangulation. It's like, because you need to understand that desire is a flow and the, the flow of desire is, is, is meant to look, you know, desires everywhere, Sex, sexuality. This is like the whole libidinal materialism thing that was very trendy in France at this time, right? That sexuality is everywhere and all the flows are going everywhere. So you have to imagine it as almost like this river that's going. So one way to think about the triangulation is, is like a dam and it comes in and it, it keeps blocking off certain parts and it eventually it eventually starts blocking up the flow until you basically you've almost created like a mini pool of some sort where it's just bouncing off certain directions to to give just a brief final point uh, you can see that too where they talk about the uh the case study of that capross and carlette present of the schizo which is our stand-in for psychotic right where the person um actually did show something oedipal although since it's a woman that's in question, sort of more of an electric complex. But anyways, the point they make is it's in, not only is it inverted because of the gender roles, but it also um, it seems that the person, the psychotic, didn't even recognize the people um, under that father-mother subjectivity that Oedipus would require. Just quote Muskie uh, from the chat because I've been reading that. I think it's really fair. I'm just going to quote directly. Uh, I see a solid analogy between this process and colonialism, but I would need more knowledge to suss it out the way it deserves. Deleuze and Guattari seem to be arguing that Oedipus is external to the schizo and imposed on their mental state, like other social technologies are imposed by violence and imperialism. And I would actually, Muskie, expand on that further. Um, and they're not there as well. Yes, uh, you've been, both of you have been discussing this, and I think it's fair. I would add, it's not just social technologies, but... Uh, also their own body without organs, the same way that uh, when the settlers arrived to Americas, or Ayn Rand talks about why the Indians deserve to lose everything, it's because they never developed the land. That's not a mental mentality that any indigenous person in America had. Uh, they didn't understand the concept of that. 
but by saying, well, you need to develop the land, but them not having the tools necessarily to do it, it doesn't work as a pattern that they need to follow or as an organizational tool. And it basically puts them in a double bind as well. Uh, I'm, I'm just very familiar with Ayn Rand because I went through a chud phase in high school. Fuck, I'm from the Midwest. A lot of white Midwest guys went through a chud phase at some point. So I just know Ayn Rand. It's the way it goes. It's the way it works. Uh, but it makes me really well-versed when I'm talking to alt-right guys because they really, really hate her and they don't know it. Um, so I, I'm, I would love to continue uh, uh, reading, actually. Uh, would anyone like to pick up where I left off? Uh, hence another class of information. I'll volunteer. Go for it. Hence another possible formulation of an inverse relationship. There would be something like two groups, the psychotics and neurotics. Those who do not tolerate oedipalization, and those who tolerate it and are even content with it and evolve within it. Those on whom the Oedipal imprint does not take, and those on whom it does. Quote, I believe my friends cast off in a, in a group at the start of the new age with forces for a practical explosion that thrust them into a paternalistic deviation that I find depraved. A second group of loners, of which I am a part, doubtless constituted by centers of collarbones, was deprived of any possibility of individual success at the moment they were engaged in laborious studies in innate science. With regard to them, my rebellion against the paternalism of the first group placed me from the second year in a socially difficult position that was growing more and more suffocating. So, do you believe these two groups are capable of being joined? I am not too angry with these bastards of virile paternalism. I am not vindictive. In any case, if I have one, there will be no more struggles between the father and the son. I am speaking of God's people naturally, not of those close to him who take themselves for his people. End quote. It is the recording of desire on the increate body without organs, and the familiar recordings on the socius that are in opposition throughout the two groups. The innate science in psychosis and the neurotic experimental sciences. The schizoid eccentric circle and their neurosis triangle. There are so many questions I have here. Uh, I want to actually, I, I actually have just a standing question if anyone can answer it. The last sentence, I don't understand it at all. Um, the schizoid eccentric circle. Uh, I don't, I looked up the word eccentric and I cannot figure out what it means in this case. Uh, okay, so I, I think I, I, I can kind of help out here. So they're, they're differentiating this, the nomadism, the, the, the nomadism of the schizo versus the, uh, I think what is the, what I think they're using neurosis and paranoiac in a similar manner in this sentence. At least I'm going to assume that because that's what I see with the word triangle. But, um, because so the, 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 the neurosis triangle has to do with bi-univocalization, but the eccentric circle, that has to do with the eternal return of the celibate machine, right? So for, for the example of the celibate machine in chapter one, they give, uh, they, get, they, they look at Klosowski's reading of Nietzsche's uh, vicious circle and, uh, uh, yeah, and essentially the, the, that, the way they conceive the, the, 
that this the celibate machine is as if the schizo, the nomadic schizo, it goes into a circle and he's doing this almost eternal return and he's consuming intensities and he's go and he, he's uh, I think physically you have to understand it as he's going into in- intensities and that's the reason why for the schizo it's not it's not representational right they don't see it as oh I'm uh, I am becoming woman in the sense that. Uh, I, I take the feminine role. It's it, the feminine representation. It's more I'm becoming woman because I'm feeling the affect of becoming woman, something like okay. that. Well, so, so then they're using the term eccentric here. Uh, the The circle is eccentric. Uh, eccentric in this case in spelling means uh, off axis, not centered. Uh, in this case, they're talking about it because if they're referring to the vicious circle, which it's been a long time, um, the core concept is that uh, things move, yeah, uh, they move within me, they move around me, I'm not necessarily the center of them as all of that stuff works around. Is that... Uh, I, I think when they talk about that that subject that transverses the body with that organs, that subject's always de, de- territory. I mean, the subject's always decentralized. So I think you're right with there, but I, I'm not so sure. Cause I, yeah, I'm not positive, but it's, it, I mean, it helps me understand because then they're, then they're talking about the neuro the neurotic triangle is something that i would say is you could all all the points are anchored the neurotic triangle is very very anchored and centered in a very specific place whereas the schizoid eccentric circle is not and i like it it, it makes sense that they're using those opposite each other uh, especially after the passage um, I believe my friends cast off in a group at the start of the new age with forces for a practical explosion that thrust them into a paternalistic deviation that I find depraved. Uh, the neurotic, he's speaking of. A second group of loners, of which I am part, doubtless con- constituted by centers of collarbones, was deprived of any possibility of individual success at the moment they were engaged in studies in innate science. With regard to them, my rebellion against the paternalism of the first group placed me with a second year in a socially difficult position that was growing more and more suffocating. Uh, the innate science and psychosis and the neurotic experimental sciences, they're, they're, they're contrasting those. Yeah, I think what kind of helps is the sentence after the quote where they write, it is the recording of desire on the increate body without organs and the familiar recording on the socius that are in opposition throughout the two groups, right? So um, it's, it's kind of like what you're saying where there's an Oedipal recording and there's a non-Oedipal recording. Yeah, and the, the increate body without organs. The desire being the it's uh, the body that does not exist yet. It's it's as it's being made. It's being recorded upon. I I think it's that the body without organs is not created or creatable. If that makes sense. Well, I mean I mean what do you mean? They clearly says that say that the body without organs is created. I mean this is why that discussion we were having of of of, of God was kind of getting on my nerves because it 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 is it does the same role of, as God but it doesn't it's not produced as God is produced by himself right it it, it works as is in the sense that it's it's produced uh, it's produced as 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 soon as there's anti production where there's a disjunction between two desire machines and there's a register of uh, of that previous uh, sign connection like the the sign connection of satisfaction that's that there's a there's a there's a satisfaction signifier or something like that on it and then it's creating a network so the body with that organs is always created after desire production 
This sounds like something we should sort out in the review. Yeah, I think we can spend some time in the review. We we actually have enough time, I think, to go through uh, a little slowly. But I think actually they start. I mean, the next the next paragraph also does address some of this, and I think sets it up. Um, and I think uh, I'm going to just echo reputable doubles comment. Uh, we should do our best not to name drop too many other people as we go through these explanations and and discuss them. I think it's a fair point. Um, uh, it's a difficult one because they refer to so many fucking people as they go. So we'll do our best, reputable. Um, I'm going to go ahead and read the next uh, paragraph. And you guys can continue chatting in the chat. <laughs> On a more general level, it is the two kinds of use made of the synthesis that are in opposition. On the one hand, there are the desiring machines. On the other, the Oedipal narcissistic machine. In order to understand the details of the struggle, it must be borne in mind that the family relentlessly operates on desiring production, inscribing itself into the recorded process of desire, clutching at everything. The family performs a vast appropriation of the productive forces. It displaces and reorganizes in its own fashion the entirety of the connections and the hiatuses that characterize the machine of desire. It reorganizes them all along the lines of universal castration that conditions the family itself. A dead rat's ass, said Arto, suspended from the ceiling of the sky. But it also redistributes these breaks in accordance with its own laws and the requirements of social production. The inscription performed by the family follows the pattern of its triangle by distinguishing what belongs to the family from what does not. It also cuts inwardly along the lines of differentiation that form global persons. There's daddy, there's mommy, there you are, then there's your sister. Cut into the flow of milk here, it's your brother's turn, don't take a crap here, cut into the stream of shit over there. Retention is the primary function of the family. It is a matter of learning what elements of desiring production the family is going to reject, what it is going to retain, what it is going to direct along the dead-end roads leading to its own undifferentiated, the miasma. And what, on the contrary, it is going to lead down the paths of a contagious and reproducible differentiation. For the family creates, at the same time, its disgraces and honors, the non-differentiation of its neurosis and the differentiation of its ideal, which are distinguishable only in appearance. I mean, I think that idea about so it's mine, that's sort of the bio-univocalization and sort of that whole error of, uh, you know, how, how the third synthesis is fundamentally understood as a, as, as a misunderstanding for the subject, right? It's essentially that um, it thinks, it thinks it's, uh, you think you have control. You think you think you're in control of your desires, but rather it's your desire that selects you. So we saw this in the process that it's the body without organs. It's the attraction and repulsion of the body without organs that generates familiar personality types or intensities of that matter, and uh, it, it, the intensities. And then it's not that you. See, it, the, the problem is that there's a misunderstanding in the movement. It, that's why it's sort of like a circle, right? That essentially you think you pick the intensity, but it's more that the intensity picks you to a certain degree. And I, and I think the so it's mine is created from that by univocalization where you get that idea that, you know, I'm of the superior race. And that has to do sort of with the, uh, the schizophrenic uh, inclusive versus the paranoiac exclusive. So I'm, I'm going to go back to uh, 
the a thing we were talking about uh, in the last couple of weeks is how the family relates to social repression. Uh, we were talking a lot about it last week with the last chapter, social repression uh, being the focus of it. Um, the family and how it operates with social repression is essentially, and I, I use the term almost as a lens, maybe a prism may be better, but the family's role is effectively to uh, teach the child or display for the child the social repression they are meant to experience in order to function in society. Is that fairly, uh, is that, does that make sense as a concept, uh, Varun? I don't know, maybe. Because um... they talk about it here, uh, that the way that the family operates, uh, the family creates at the same time its disgraces and honors, uh, the non-differentiation of its neurosis and the differentiation of its ideal, which are distinguishable only in appearance. Um, uh, the matter of learning what elements of desiring production the family is going to reject and what it is going to retain. Uh, that, that that is the goal. The family's goal is basically as a unit, uh, this this retention of uh, the the repression that's happening at a social level. So I, I think it's that essentially that the repression that happens in the family, and that's it. I mean, the problem with using the word family here is because it's 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 not exactly the family. It's it's like a a complex of three processes, right? Is that correct to say that it's 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 three it's more three processes coming together in directly in the locus of the family, to be more accurate. And what happens is that in the family, then uh, it's a psychic repression teaches us to desire social repression. That's how it sort of works, in my opinion. Okay. Well, then, so I would ask um, because. What we're talking about here, again, and they, they mentioned it a few times earlier, is the recording on the socius. The socius uh, is, is effectively the body without organs, as they've said multiple times, and they've equated the two. So uh, at the same time, though, they do say that the the body without organs is increate. Uh, desire on the increate body without organs. Familiar recording on the socius. So if the family is recording all of these things, and retention is the primary function of the family, then ultimately what we're talking about here is where desiring production uh, is being broken or where it's being repressed in order to record on the body without organs. Yeah, repressed is a better word. It's where it's being channeled. Yeah, I, I think repressed, I, I used the, the uh, allegory of the stream where you you dig out a slight corner of it and then all the stream suddenly starts going there. The desire operates quite like that, the flows of desire. And when you actually break off a little piece, the water fills it up. It just doesn't understand it's not supposed to, that it's just going to get stuck there, but it just fills it up and it, and it swerves, swerves in a pool. And I'd like that sort of mentality for a lot of this because the family's job is essentially taking what is this pure uh, unadulterated uh, desire stream which is sort of the naked born human who just desires that's all they do and slowly starts putting places in there that break off of that and as we start putting pieces of that and the flows of desire start moving up it changes its intensities it changes how it relates to the world and it places repression in those locations and those those moments of repression are where desire gets caught and therefore the repression itself is actually what creates the desire uh, prior to Oedipus, I didn't really give a shit about fucking my mom, but now I know I shouldn't be doing that. Apparently, that's what I really want. 
Right. Um, I mean, and the, the, the thing is that the flows of desire are really malleable. That's the thing. Since they're so interconnected, they're so, uh, and this, that's the big libidinal materialism, right? They're everywhere. So they're all so interconnected that one, one desiring machine is always cutting off from another desiring machine. Since they're so interconnected, it makes, you know, you move one, you basically move the whole, it's like a, a domino effect almost. Yeah, if it helps, the, the fourth per, per, paralogism, if I remember correctly, is displacement. So that is, yeah, you're right. Yeah, that is to say, right, like it's it's where desire can be displaced. So, um, right, social repression works that psychic repression will become its agent. And so instead of allowing desire to, to sort of just uh, cut through the social structures and the social... Um, sort of um, the, the social being of it all, right? The, that which we would conserve, desire would cut through that. So social repression works that it makes psychic repression its agent and the family is the, um, the, the uh, mediator in between that as they're explaining it, whereby the family is a way of, um, sort of like you were saying, bro, it's a way of displacing desire onto the psychic repression. So like, I, I think of it sort of like a bait and switch where it's like, it's sort of like I was saying about the uh, the ego, right? Oh no, no, you don't want the cardboard, you want the breast, right? Playing with things, go ahead, Varun. And I think the key thing here is it's it's the reason the family is like this. It's because of the separation that it causes between uh, between uh, desiring production and social reproduction. And that's specifically like their critique of capitalism, right? That it's contradicting the laws of the unconscious so much that it's creating two segregated fields. That you have one field of uh, you have one field of, of social production. You know, you go to the factory, you you, you do your labor, and you have one field of uh, reproduction in the family where you you produce kids and stuff and it's it's from that segregation that it's it's and that segregation is specific to capitalism where all this stuff is basically happening i I think that's the point that they're trying to illustrate in this chapter to a certain degree at least well they actually get into that really quick onto the next uh chapter does it varun you want to give it a read the next chapter, sorry. The next, the next uh, paragraph, I'm sorry. Next paragraph. Uh, well, this is taking place. While this is taking place, what is desiring production doing? The retained elements do not enter in the new use of the synthesis that imposes such a profound change on them without causing the whole triangle to reverberate. The desiring machines are at the door. They make everything shake when they enter. Moreover, what does not enter causes perhaps even more vibrations to be felt. The desiring machines reintroduce or attempt to reintroduce their de- de- deviant cuts and breaks. The child feels the task required of them. But what is it to be put into the ha- triangle? How are the tri- selections to be made? The father's nose or the mother's ear? Again, this is I think this is where the body without organs comes in, right? It makes those it makes those movements. The father's nose or the mother's ear will will that do? Can that be retained? Will will that constitute a good Oedipal inclusion? And the bicycle horn. What is part of the family? It is a triangle's job to vibrate, to resonate under the pressure of what it retains as much as it thrusts aside. Resonance here again, either muffled or public, disgraceful or proud, is the family's second function. The family is at the same time an anus that retains a voice that resounds and a mouth that consumes its very own three syntheses. Since 
It is as a matter of connecting desire to the ready-made objects of social productions. Go buy Madeleine's and Combroy if you really want to feel the vibrations. That's a great last line. Why is that a great last line? <laughs> what, why? Yeah, I don't. Oh, because it's, it's, essentially it's, it's talking about how, you know, it's almost like a... I might get in trouble for saying this, but it's almost like a situationist thing where, uh, you know, your desire is created, right? It's, it's not inherent desire. So your desire is created and, you know, the flows get created. So, so your investment changes to go to this product or something. I, I took it as like, a, go on a family trip to buy Madeline's if you really want to see this. That's also, that's actually how I read it too. Uh, I, I, I tried to figure out uh, uh, Combre and how it's set up. It's a, it's a commune in France. So that can't be, uh, it's a, the, the vibrations of the family and how it's affected by things inside the world of a commune as you go to buy uh, effectively their sweets, their bakery commune. Um, so uh, looks like this is a way of understanding the family as desiring production continues, right? So it looks like um, were they right? I, I don't know if it's about desiring production continues as much as the reality is as as we're growing inside of the family unit, uh, and I'm taking this and thinking of my two and a half year old Dexter's growing, and as we go, my job as father is in the Oedipal Triangle is to do X, Y, and Z. My wife's job is X, Y, and Z. And as we go, uh, he gets exposed to desiring machines. They're at the door of our family unit pretty much all the time, whether it's Spider-Man cartoons or uh, the girl across the street who wants to play or the dog that he sees, whatever it may be, these these uh, apparatuses that exist that are causing desire to be produced and desiring production in his world. And our job is to basically tell him, no, that's not part of the family. Here's how you behave. Here's how you set up. Um and the resonance here again, muffled republic, disgraceful, proud is the family's second function. Uh, we are an anus that retains, a voice that resounds, and a mouth that consumes. We are the very three syntheses. Uh, the the idea that basically our job is to be that filtration for the world, create repression within him that causes him not to want to desire those things and try to stop those desiring machines at the door. Well, I think that I think that they're talking about desiring machines not just coming like as a force that comes outside and invades the family, but something that is like um what's the word I'm looking for? Like suffused, right? That the family is already soaked in desiring production. Oh yes. And, no, no, for sure. For yeah. sure. I was being I was I was probably being over specific with the line the desiring machines are at the door. But no, it's it's uh, as we go through life, we are part of at any point hundreds of desiring machines uh, ourselves. And yeah. So is the family as a unit. So is the family as individuals, and so is everything around us for sure. Yeah, which I think gets at that the use of the word residence that they're getting at, where there's um, you're gonna you, like the individual in the context of the family is going to chase their own desire, right? But the family's job is to sort of resonant respond to that sort of. I guess. And to displace, right? Because I think consumption and all that still is happening, right? But it's it's like we were saying earlier, it's displaced now. And and they specifically uh they, they specifically call out the idea that 
Um, the triangle's job, the fam, the triangle's job. I like they go between triangle and family very cleanly. Uh, the triangle's job to vibrate, resonate under the pressure of what it retains. The the uh, the family uh, pushes a lot of things out. The Oedipal Triangle pushes a lot of things out of here. At the same time, we pull a lot of things and we hold things inside of it. And that pressure of the out to the in uh, creates a resonance, like a submarine actually has a resonance because it's got so much pressure outside as well as the pressure inside. Uh, at the same time, the resonance here for a family they call specifically muffled or public, disgraceful or proud. That is, uh, I think... Uh, if I were to say that you can look at a family and tell how they feel about their children, uh, you can. They are disgraced. They are proud. They are privately so or loudly publicly so, whatever it may be. That resonance is how the family is regarding itself uh, outwards against sort of social repression or inside of the social setup is, is how I would read that. And their joke, uh, the bicycle horn, what is a part of the family? It's... Uh, it's almost a facetious joke. It's not even so much that a bicycle horn is obviously not part of the family, but very much the family's job is to actually say what is family and what isn't. Um, anything else on that chapter from anyone before we move uh, that paragraph? Why do I keep saying chapter? Because it feels like it. That's why. Um, anyone have anything more on that paragraph? Any more questions? Any more thoughts? Fair enough, Varun. Uh, I'll go ahead and give a read to the next one. We now come to the realization that the simple opposition between the two groups is inadequate. An opposition that would allow one to define neurosis as an intra-Oedipal disorder and psychosis as an extra-Oedipal escape. It is not even enough to state that the two groups are capable of being joined. Rather, it is the possibility of discriminating directly between the two that creates the difficulty. How can we distinguish between the pressure that familial reproduction exercises on desiring production and the pressure that desiring production exercises on familial reproduction? The Oedipal Triangle vibrates and trembles. But is this in terms of the hold over the machines of desire that it constantly guarantees itself, or in terms of these machines that escape the Oedipal imprint and cause the Triangle to release its grip? Where does the resonance of the Triangle reach its limit? A familial resonance expresses an effort to save the Oedipal genealogy, but it also expresses a free thrust of non-Oedipal genealogy. Fantasies are never pregnant forms, but border or frontier phenomena, ready to cross over to one side or the other. In short, Oedipus is strictly undecidable. It can be found everywhere all the more readily for being undecidable, and in this sense it is correct to say that Oedipus is strictly good for nothing. I mean, that last sentence kind of dials it in. Right, because there's so many um, there's, there's, there's so many things happening socially. I mean, before you, you walk into the analyst's office, right? There's already the, and I'm talking about specifically in the social, in the realm of social production, there's so many things happening already before you walk into the analyst's office that, you you know, these subjects are already, uh, they're already coming at applies and they're, they're coming in and just the psychoanalyst is just f finishing, putting in the like the finishing touches, right? It's like, you know, the, the sprinkles on a cake almost. Right, right. It's the, uh, if I remember correctly, that's part of the reactionary unconscious investment, right? Which I think, like, um, 
This sentence illustrates really well. A familial romance expresses an effort to save the Oedipal genealogy. It also expresses a free thrust of non-Oedipal genealogy, right? That's, that's sort of like delirium between um, the reactionary investment and the revolutionary investment taking place at the same time and sort of creating a delirium thereby. Well, and, and I think uh, to, to what I was talking about earlier, as the family is uh, doing all of this and they're, hand, they're keeping things out and holding things in, the ability to know where one starts and the other begins or what's happening at any given point is something that you could infinitely argue back and forth. And I think that's their point here is that it's actually not possible to very specifically say, well, this is due to Oedipus when there's so many other things going on. And so because of that, Oedipus is essentially useless. Yeah. Fantasies are never pregnant forms, border or frontier phenomena ready to cross over to one side or the other. At any point, we could say anything is Oedipal or not, or anything is intrapersonal to Oedipal, anything is external to it. Yeah, and I think that takes us back into like the way they're they're discussing like um, reality as it's connected to the neurotic, and reality as it's connected to the um, to what Freud would want to call the psychotic, but what we're calling the schizoid. Yes, I'm I'm not reading. I'm 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 rambling a little bit out loud. Uh, Philo, apologize. Um, let's say I tend to do that when I read these books. Yeah, I like that. I like that section a lot. Would anyone like to read the next section on uh, the beautiful story of Gerard de Neverell, uh, or someone who can pronounce it better than me, ideally? Uh, yeah, I can try. I, I don't know French though. But... <laughs> Go for it. Let us turn to the beautiful story of Gerard de Neverell. He wants Aruel, his fondest love, his fondest love, to be the same as Adrian. The little, the little girl of his childhood, he perceives them as identical, and Aruel and Adriana, both in one, are his mother. Will it be said that the identification as a perpetual identity is here a sign of psychosis? One then encounters the criterion of reality. The complex invades the psychotic consciousness only at the price of rupture with the real. Whereas neurosis, the identity remains the unconscious representations and does not compromise perception. But what is what is there to gain from inscribing everything in Oedipus, even psychosis? One step further in Arua and Arian and the mother and are the virgin. Uh, Narval seeks the point where the vibration of the triangle is at its limit. You are simply seeking for drama, says Arawal. Everything is not inscribed in Oedipus, without everything at its extreme fleeing beyond the reach of Oedipus. These identifications are not identifications with persons from the point, the point of viewpoint of perception, but identifications of the names with regions of intensity that provide the impetus toward other, more intense regions, stimuli of one sort 
or another that set in motion another journey altogether. Stasis that prepare for other breakthroughs, other movements, where the mother is no longer encountered with the virgin and God. And twice I have crossed the, and conquered the Acheron. Thus the schizo will accept the reduction of everything to the mother, since it is of no importance whatsoever. He is sure of being able to make everything rise again from the mother and to keep his for a secret use of all that versions that had been placed there. Uh, is anyone more familiar with the story they're telling? Because it's another thing I need to read at some point. I'm really lost in the story, but I think the key part here is that last part about the schizo will accept the reduction of everything to the mother, since it is of no importance whatsoever. He is sure of being able to make sure everything rises again from the mother and to keep for his own secret, use all the virgins that had been placed there. I want to actually just reiterate something that Philo said in the chat. Uh, keep in mind, the refutation of Oedipal is not a refutation of Oedipus. They have made that clear, by the way, throughout the entire book. They're not saying Oedipus doesn't exist. Uh, it is simply the abandonment of the reinterpretation of Oedipus and its implementation everywhere, especially when it isn't. Uh, yeah, I, I think the best way to describe this is... Right, like, it's a great way to put it. I, I think they were, instead of critiquing Lacan, they were trying to save Lacan from Lacan himself. Actually, that's probably a fair way to put it, and I bet you Guattari would agree. Um, I bet you you would say something a little harsher, but generally that. Um, and I, I actually, the, this paragraph as I read it, and I, I don't know enough about uh, uh, Gerard de Nerval, uh, or however you pronounce it, I don't know enough to be able to actually discuss uh, the story or how it fits. Um, Oh, Kent, thank you. Uh, Kent linked to uh, the story of Asheron. Greek mythology, Asheron was known as the River of Woe and was one of the five rivers of the Greek underworld. The word is uncertain etymology. Uh, for me, it's uh, I only know it as Asheron's call, uh, but that's my problem, not everyone else's. It's a video game joke. Did not land. I understand very well. That's fine. All right, uh, I'm going to go ahead and continue reading. Uh, we are nearing uh, a solid amount of this stuff, um, but I think a lot of the rest of this chapter is them basically, what we've discussed, it's them uh, reiterating quite a bit. Uh, everything can, can be converted into neuroses or warped out of shape into psychoses. It is therefore not in this fashion that the question must be posed. It would be inaccurate to maintain an Oedipal interpretation for the neuroses and to reserve an extra Oedipal explanation for the psychoses. There are not two groups. There is no difference in nature between neuroses and psychoses. For in any case, desiring production is the cause, the ultimate cause of both the psychotic subversion that shatters Oedipus and over, or overwhelm it, and of the neurotic reverberations that constitute it. Such a principle takes on its full meaning if it is related to the problem of actual factors. One of the most important points of psychoanalysis was the evaluation of the role of these actual factors, even in neurosis, insofar as they are indistinguishable from the familial infantile factors. All the major dissensions were linked to this evaluation. The difficulties bore on several aspects. First, the nature of these factors. Were they somatic, social, metaphysical? Were they the famous problems of living, through which a very pure desexualized idealism was reintroduced into psychoanalysis? 
this has got to be Guattari. This has got to be Guattari. In the second place, the modality of these factors. Did they act in a negative, primitive fashion by mere frustration? Finally, their moment, their own time. Was it not self-evident that the actual factors arose afterwards and signified recent in opposition to the infantile or the oldest factor that could be sufficiently explained by the familial complex? Even a writer like Rick, Reich, so careful to situate desire in relation to the forms of social production, demonstrating thereby that there is no psychoneuroses that is not also an actual neuroses, continues to present the actual factors as acting by a means of repressive deprivation, sexual stasis, and as arising afterwards, which leads him to maintain a kind of diffuse Oedipalism, since the stasis or the actual privative factor only defines the energy of the neurosis, but not the content that for its own part refers to the infantile Oedipal conflict, but this old conflict becoming reactivated by the actual stasis. Oh, fucking Quattri. That's got to be Quattri, and it makes my head hurt. Um, I'm just going to reiterate earlier uh, something that was said by Philo. Uh, it is simply the abandonment of the reinterpretation of Oedipus and its implementation everywhere, especially when it isn't. Uh, just that's what that paragraph was saying, as far as I'm concerned. Anyone have other thoughts? Uh, then would anyone like to take on the next paragraph? I'll volunteer. All right, let's go for it. But the Oedipalists are not saying anything different from this when they remark that an actual deprivation or frustration cannot be experienced except in the midst of an older, internal, qualitative conflict, which blots not merely the roads prohibited by reality, but also those that reality leaves open, and that the ego forbids itself in its turn, the double impasse formula. Quote, could one find examples illustrating the diagram of actual neuroses in the prisoner or the concentration camp victor, victim or the worker harassed by work? It is not certain that they would furnish a large quota. Our systematic tendency is not to accept the evident inequities of reality without taking stock of them, without trying to disclose in what sense the disorder of the world is manifested in the subjective disorder, even if it is, with the passing of time, inscribed within more or less irreversible structures, end quote. We understand this sentence, but can't help finding its tone disturbing. The following choice is imposed on us. Either the actual factors conceived in a totality, I'm sorry, Either the actual factor is conceived in a totally exterior pri privative fashion, which is an impossibility, or it descends into an internal qualitative conflict that is necessarily understood in relation to Oedipus. Oedipus, the fountainhead where the psychoanalyst washes his hands of the world's iniquities. So am I right that this is sort of getting at what the difference between neurosis and psychoneurosis is right where if you have a psychoneurosis it's because you have you as an individual have this sort of aberrant desire that can't um uh express itself right and that's a psychoneurosis and then a neurosis might be something like someone who's like actually in you know an institution like the examples they give of concentration camp victims that you know are being forced to confront you know blocks to their ability to live 
and so the disturbing thing that they're saying is that like it's really disturbing if you treat certain neuroses as in you know parts of the individual and that these big um institutions aren't malleable like that makes sense is that what is that the right reading <laughs> I, I don't i don't know i i i'm i'm trying to figure it out myself in my i'm typing right now with bigum um but it's a uh, I mean, I think the the question actually that we should probably start with, and I don't know if anyone has an answer, Kent might be really useful here. What is the difference between neuroses and psychoneuroses? Um, yeah, unfortunately, I don't know. Yeah, uh, the the closest I I think it's a. And as I wrote, don't hate me. Uh, neurosis is a specific diagnosis, and psychoneurosis is the sort of a class of disorders when you're talking about it sort of clinically at a large level, the same way you might say uh, someone has uh, pneumonia uh, versus someone has uh, illness of the lungs or some shit like that. Um, no, but, it's, it's... Go ahead. But, but I think generally, I mean, I, I would hang on to the last part where it said... Uh, and this is a, a real problem, is, uh, you know, the world's inequities. I mean, how much of uh, uh, mental illness and suffering in general is due to problems in the world? I mean, you know, uh, probably quite a, quite a few of them. Well, and and so, we were t- actually, it's a thing we, we should probably even go back to because we were talking earlier about the applications of how the Oedipal is put upon the schizo uh, as very much colonialism. And it's, I don't think it's a stretch to say that. Um, I don't think it's a stretch to say that because as they talk about here, the last line, Oedipus, the fountainhead where psychoanalyst watches his hands of the world's iniquities. The moment you're able to see Oedipus everywhere and it's just the solution to life's problems, uh, because of that, you're able to, you, you, you look at everything in terms of that triangle, and by doing so, you've actually eliminated so many millions of other possibilities or inputs or things that affect things. Um, well, it's, I mean, I see Oedipus as kind of a blame the victim strategy, you know, that's institutionalized so that we don't have to change the world, we can just blame Oedipus. Yeah, um, and I, I do want to read a handful of uh, comments from chat real quick. Yeah, I mean, uh, the example that I like to give, if, if, if you're talking about like the victim blame thing, is like ADHD, for example, right? I mean, I know some people who they just say, oh, so it's a biological, it's like really like sort of like the whole anti-psychiatry movement, right? People go, it's it's a biological condition of ADHD, but no, what if like the class here and it's just boring? <laughs> what if that's really the problem after all? Well, yeah, so that that's, that's exactly the point is that, for instance, you know, ADHD is a condition, okay, they recognize it, then they decide everyone has it. And, and they're not willing to look at, uh, to... I keep going back to Latour's sort of use of network theory out of a lot of this, uh, because I think it applies when you start looking at why things work the way they do. And a child has ADHD, but you don't begin researching, oh, did the school recently do away with recesses outdoors and the gym class because they ran out of budget? That may affect a kid's ability to focus. Um, Some very simple things like that just go out the window because ADHD has a very specific diagnosis and it's chemical and it's done and blah, 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 and we're done. I don't need to look at anything else more. 
So that's the psych- psychoanalyst watching their hands of the world's iniquities, right? Yes, that's. Uh, okay. oh, of course, the indigenous people were taken aback. They didn't have an understanding that they wanted to fuck their moms, which is, I'm sure, something actually someone said that unsarcastically in every way. God damn it. Someone probably fucking said that. <laughs> Unfortunately. It's a. Um, but the other thing I want to I want to read out uh, a couple comments from chat. Uh, Varun, uh, your comment. Wilhelm Reich once equated the absence of humor with the psychic core of fascism, but the crypto fascists of today should be defined differently as those who are good only at making humor. Oh, oh no, so many. Uh, those who are good at only making humor at the expense of someone else, never exercising a self-implicating humor. I like that line. Uh, that was just that's just a joke. <laughs> I, I actually think it's a pretty fair point. Um, so. Good on you. And then Philo, uh, Lacan is the embodiment of capitalist psychoanalysis. I like this a lot. Uh, Deleuze himself referred to Lacan's overpriced sessions. The Oedipus is here, but only apparent to the analyst in the chair. It's an argument from ignorance, but it's only ignorance for the patient. You see, you have problems, and it is only me who has the tools to extrapolate the Oedipal problems you have suppressed and are simply unaware of. I took a private session on Deleuze with a focus on Lacan and Hegel, and this was brought up, and I I thank you for that because it's... uh, it adds color to this for sure, because uh, Lacan is one of those things that's always in the bushes, uh, especially when Guattari writes. There's no way that he's not somewhere in that discussion. No way he's not. Um, would anyone like to read the next paragraph, though, as we move ahead? Uh, sure, I'll go. Let me open up my book. Oh, no, Big Chungus, you had a great question. Where did it go? Did Big Chungus delete it? Oh, yeah. He deleted the question. It's a great question uh, uh, that we should reserve for the conversation tomorrow. Uh, I don't think we have enough time to get into it. But uh, Big Chungus asked, uh, why is is Oedipus capitalist? Is it possible to have a communist Oedipus? And I think that's that's actually a great uh conversation although scapey did just answer it basically really shortly so uh, communism is not rooted in desire capitalism is uh, i mean i mean i think the key key thing here is not just oedipus i think it's psychoanalysis as an institution as a whole because what it's doing is it's you know it's dividing and i feel like i've been saying this like a broken record right but it's it's dividing the two fields right of yes. uh, social reproduction and social production and that's causing such a it's causing a vibration everywhere, essentially. Yes, that the resonance, I think, as they put it, um, of the division between the two. So yeah. in, in, in communist, the, well, I mean, it depends on what the fuck you mean by communist. But to me, you wouldn't actually see a division between those two inside of my understanding of what communism or... I mean, I, 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 think, I think like it, like their critique of Marx... I mean, they're very critical of Marx in this book, right? Because they say that you know the ideal society is not constructed on what benefits the proletariat or what benefits society as a whole. Like they don't give a shit about people. They're in fact, I don't think there's any human in Antiochus, but uh, they're going to say what be- the ideal society should be constructed on the laws that least contradict the unconscious, rather than what you know Marx will have you say. I. I'm just making a very brief point. We would be wise not to privilege communism or socialism as the cure. And you can already see why I'm using that word. Um, yes. In the same way, right, if if these if this metaphysics were to be applied to any socialist or communist um, society, 
the same things would be on the table whereby displacement is still possible. Um, the the break the paralogisms are still possible, so we would be wise not to privilege a cure. Well, and I think uh, not to sort of jump ahead much in this book or a thousand plateaus, but I think they would even argue that uh, your use of the word cure is actually the way to think about it because we should not be striving towards communism. Instead, we should be trying to fix things like this and fix how things are recorded, and by doing so, the result would be this idealized society, which in my case, my belief would be communism, but um, that it's much more about that rather than trying to identify and define what you want the result to be, which is the cure. Uh, but we should uh, keep going because we have uh, about 27 minutes left. We're, we, we started a little late, so we've got about a half hour. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and continue reading uh, from We Maintain. <clears throat> We maintain that the cause of disorder, neurosis or psychosis, is always in desiring production. Did we skip a paragraph? Oh, Sorry. shit. Did I? Yeah. I yes, think it's I did. In and altogether. Yes. Well, do you want to give it a read, Muskie? Sure, I'll go. All right. In an altogether different direction, if we consider the idealist deviations of psychoanalysis, we see them in an in, we see in them an interesting attempt at giving the actual factors a status other than ulterior or ulterior or privative. This came about as two concerns were found to be linked in an apparent paradox. For example, in Jung, the concern for curtailing the interminable cure by addressing oneself to the present or actual state of the disorder, and the concern for going further than Oedipus, even further than the pre-Oedipal, for going much further back, as if what was but as if what was most actual was also the most primary, the shortest, the furthest removed. Jung presents his archetypes as actual factors that extend, in fact, beyond the familial images and in the transference, as well as being archaic factors infinitely older and from an order of time which is not that of the infantile factors themselves. But nothing has been gained thereby, since the actual factor ceases to be privative only provided it enjoys the rights of the ideal, and does not cease to be an afterward except by becoming a beyond which must be signified anagogically by Oedipus instead of depending on it analytically. This necessarily results in the reintroduction of the afterward in the temporal difference, as the astonishing distribution proposed by Jung attests. For the young, whose problems concern the family and love, Freud's method, for the less young, whose problems have to do with social adaptation, Adler, and young for the adults and the old people, whose problems have to do with the ideal and we have even we have seen what remains common to Freud and Jung: the unconscious always measured against myths and not against the units of production. Although the measuring is done in two contrary directions, but what does it matter after all if morality or religion find an analytical and regressive meaning in Oedipus, or if Oedipus finds an anagogical and perspective meaning in morality or religion? I, I think one thing to keep in mind here is that uh, they specifically capitalized the word ideal. Right. So I'm wondering if, if they're referring to like, you know, idea in the sense that Kant uses the word idea or idea in the sense that Plato uses the word idea. Right. For Kant, the idea is any, I, th I think Oedipus to a certain degree could be an idea for them because it's uh, it's something that's transcendent the same way that Kant's, uh, Kant's notion of self, God and world are transcendent or the same way that Plato's forms are transcendent. Um. Okay, so, I mean, it seems like they're interpreting Jung as being idealist, and I'm not sure if that's true. Um, it seems to me that archetypes are the opposites of ideals. Uh, but 
but anyway, uh, I don't think that matters because um, the the same critique does apply to Jung as uh, Freud and Lacan. So anyway, I'm just saying that I'm not quite sure that their interpretation of Jung here is correct, but but still, uh, both Freud and Jung have the problem of thinking that certain things are uh, conscious um, that are unconscious. I think and, that, and vice versa. I think that the way they said it in the at the end of the paragraph is gets at what the injunction against Jung is, right? Where uh, we have seen what remains common to Freud and Jung: the unconscious always measured against myths and not against the units of production. Right. So that that part. That part, I think, is, you know, definitely applies to both of them. Yeah, I think that's the easy way to say it is um, Freud has the Oedipal myth and Jung opens up space for these different myths. And um, ultimately, like, I think what Deleuze and Guadagher are trying to say is even in Jung's system, um, as interesting as it is, and I think they kind of show some admiration to it, but they sort of stop short and say, but Jung didn't go far enough. And that's in the sense that, right, Jung's not, for Deleuze and Guattari seem to be saying, Jung is not treating the materialist aspect of um, the unconscious or even the, the conditions leading into these things. It's very interesting that they have this very dense paragraph, which is, their critique of Jung kind of condensed into a very, uh, you know, concise uh, argument, but the argument is complex. Yeah, you definitely have to read all the nut stuff at the beginning of the paragraph to get to that last sentence and then be like, oh. <laughs> but just to, just to um, you know, and I, and I, an idealization is something that's kind of abstracted from the world um, and general and generalized, and uh, you know, cover, something that covers a lot of examples in the world. Uh, but but archetypes are almost the opposite because archetypes are uh, the uh, like, for instance, the father. It's all father. It's all the attributes of all fathers. That's the archetype, and so and so there's a there's a there's a deepening of the whole concept of myth that doesn't appear in uh, Freud, in Jung, and so I mean if you interpret Freud and Jung as just operating with myths at the same level, then yeah, I would agree with it. But if I mean, you I, say, I, I, yeah, yeah. really quickly no. say. I think you've got to be careful, though, because Jung is not Plato. Go ahead, Varun. I, I mean, I, no, no. The whole point. The, sorry, the whole the whole point is is the opposite of Plato. But if you, you take an archetype that's like this is the father, and then you say, and it's present in the unconscious, aren't you kind of, you know? taking something that is better described by what Deleuze and Guattari would be like desiring production, right? Like, the, 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 aren't you kind of ignoring the materialist? Like, you know, doesn't that make you an idealist? Well, okay, so, so let me just say that Jung's, Jung's point is that, say someone does not have a father, but the archetype of the father is there because they have to deal with the situation 
that um, that there are fathers in the world. Every almost everyone else has a father, and so they have to deal with the lack of the father. Um, and and who is the father? Well, the father is all concrete examples of fathers. Um, that's what the archetype is. Whereas the ideal is an ideal father. It's taking the good characteristics of the father and saying we have to have this ideal of what a father is, abstracting from all fathers. So the, the, it's, exa it's exactly the opposite of Plato. So, you, know, you take the capital I idea, and that's it. It's the simplest way to think about if you think about the capital I idea. That's a representation par excellence. And, and, and whenever you're there, just imagine losing water, image, immediately going to say, no, we have to imminentize, we have to keep everything imminent. So immediately, as soon as you start going to that right idea of, you know, the mystical phallus that everyone wants or like even, right, they, they, they're going to be very critical of that because that's like, that's almost like what they see as creating lacks and stuff. The fact that you created an ideal representation, that creates a lack for them. Right. But, but the thing is that Jungian archetype means something different. It means that it's all the concrete instances of father that are actually out there in the world. Right. But is that imminent to the unconscious? And I think if you maybe I, I'm not super well read on Jung, so I don't actually know what Jung would say about whether or not the archetypes are imminent to the unconscious. But I think that's what Deleuze and Guattari are criticizing. I like that word imminent because they want stuff to be material and imminent is a, a good way of catching that. Well, Jung, Jung is not a materialist for sure, but I'm not sure he's an idealist in the sense that uh, Freud is. Anyway, I mean, I, I'm just saying they have a very complex argument here. It'd take a long time to dissect it to find out whether it's true. But if you're just, if you're just, if if what they're doing is glossing Jung with Freud, I think that they're missing out on a lot that uh, Jung is saying beyond Freud. The next paragraph uh, gets into some uh, the discussion of what is virtual in terms of anti-Oedipus and this text. I mean, of course, in pretty much everything, Deleuzian difference and repetition went into it deeply. The concept of the virtual is one that uh, is itself worthy of a great deal of debate and discussion. Uh, you I'm sons of bitches decided you wanted us to go over it now, so we're going to do it now. Varun, do you want to give it a start? I mean, so there's a sort. I think there's. It's, it's sort of. Uh, it, it's, 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 it, no one knows exactly how. To, I mean, it's it's sort of hard to really pinpoint how we can. Say, combine all the all of Deleuze's talk together and say, oh, okay, so the virtual that he talks about in difference and repetition is the same thing as the virtual in Antiedipus. The body without organs in Antiedipus is the same thing as the body without organs in the logic of sense, right? It's, it's really hard to just say something like that. So I think we need, just need to be very careful because, you know, my knowledge of the virtual comes from difference and repetition and that's how I'm implying it here. But I think we need to read it very slowly to, to see how exactly they're using it here before and we can say it. And it would, be, it would be really, it would be really in the vein of these guys that make sure that when we're in the context of different things, these words mean slight differences. I think generally, to just go off from his point, generally they do mean similar things. I think when he uses virtual uh, inside of, uh, say, a thousand plateaus uh, or inside of difference or repetition, I think generally these things mean the same. But I think here he does have a different. There's there is a significant difference though. But here's what I'm saying. I'm saying let's just go through this uh, really slowly, and then you know I'll give my idea of the virtual. You give your idea. So yeah, I'll, I'll I'll give uh, 
I'll, I'll give uh, uh, the start of the chapter. I'll start reading and just uh, let me know when we stop. Um, we maintain that the cause of the disorder, neurosis or psychosis, is always in desiring production in its relation to social production and their different or conflicting regimes. And the modes of investment that desiring production performs in the system of social production, the actual factor is desiring production. Insofar as it is caught up in this relationship, this conflict, and these modalities. <clears throat> Nor is this factor either ulterior or privative. Being constitutive of the full life of desire, it is contemporary with the most tender age, and it accompanies this life with every step. It does not arise after Oedipus. It in no way presupposes an Oedipal organization, nor a pre-Oedipal organization. On the contrary, it is Oedipus that depends on desiring production, either as a stimulus of one form or another, a simple inductor through which the Oedipal organization of desiring production is formed, beginning with early childhood, or as an affect, as an effect, sorry, as an effect of the psychic and social repression imposed on desiring production by a social reproduction by means of the family. Here's the sentence. You ready, Varun? Uh, the term actual is not used because it designates what is most recent, but because it would be opposed to former or infantile. It is used in terms of its difference with respect to virtual. I think we can go on. Okay. And it is the Oedipus complex that is virtual, either inasmuch as it must be actualized in a neurotic formation as a derived effect of the actual factor, or inasmuch as it is dismembered and dissolved in a psychotic formation as the direct effect of the same factor. It is indeed in this sense that the idea of the afterwards seemed to us to be a final paralogism in psychoanalytic theory and practice. Active desiring production, in its very process, invests from the beginning a constellation of somatic, social, and metaphysical relations that do not follow after Oedipal psychological relations, but that on the contrary will be applied to the underlying Oedipal constellation defined by reaction, or else will exclude this constellation from the field of investment constituting their activity. Undecidable, virtual, reactive, or reactional. Such is Oedipus. It is only a reactional formation, a formation that results from a reaction to desiring production. It is a serious mistake to consider this formation in isolation, abstractly, independently of the actual factor that coexists with it and to which it reacts. Um, so basically, the virtual difference in repetition, I think it's a lot more complex, actually, than the way they use it here. In difference in repetition, the virtual, it, it, it shares a very, I think that if you want the, the least abstract way of understanding the virtual, you need to look at uh, what Delanda does. It's complexity theory and nonlinear mathematics, right? That essentially, in because what Deleuze is doing, when he's trying to build his ontology, he's trying to build an ontology of, of new things, of uh, purely... You know, why, why, rather than asking why do we have something rather than nothing for his ontology, he's beginning with the question: How is what are the conditions that new things are happening? What are the conditions that, that we are always having new things in a certain environment? Right. That's that's basically, that's basically his conditions for the real are the fact that there there are differences. Right. To start with difference in itself and to start with newness in itself, and. Uh, then what he's going on to do is he's going to say that you know you have to account for the 
insane flux of life. Everything, everything's always becoming better, right? So you have to account for that change that's always, rather than anything being some sort of stable or like fixed meanings, everything's always going to be in flux. And so uh, what he does is, well, one way to think about the virtual is to think about, uh, is to think about the nonlinear dynamics of evolution theory. So you take a, you take a zebra and uh, you, so let's say you take the evolutionary timeline of a zebra and imagine you have like a, like a, like a remote and you're, you have the ability to, like almost like watching a film, you have the ability to fast forward it backwards and you fast forward the whole rev- uh, evolutionary timeline backwards, then you fast forward it forwards again. You realize that the zebra is complete, a completely different organism. He, he's evolved in a completely different matter. And from that sense, you know, what, what he's given to do in an ontology of newness and an ontology of the contemporary sciences and an ontology of differences, you need to account for how that zebra could be just changed like that into a different organism. And so that's what the virtual is. The virtual is, is, is all those potentials within a complex system because the complex system works on based on the, in the way they organize, the way that there's different potentials of organizing in whatever, whatever uh, sort of structure you're placed in. And the virtual is to account for all those sort of potentials. And it's important to not uh, uh, confuse it with possibilities because the possibility implies that it could be, you know, it, it, it's, it's, it's not exactly real. The virtual is very much real because that's there very much in the complex uh, environment. That's, I think, uh, Simon Don uses the word metastable, right? The, 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 it, 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 all those potentials are very much there in that environment. And that's what constitutes the virtual, at least in difference in repetition. So I don't know. I, I'll let you, I'm not going into Oedipus yet, but I'll ask Brooks to first explain his understanding before I go into that. I, I don't. I don't believe our understandings are different, um, but I definitely am not going to be able to do it in quite uh, the uh, analytic philosopher way. Uh, it, for me, uh, the way I like to try to express these ideas is through examples, as you guys have guessed from how I talked prior to this. Um, the for me, the virtual is um, the actual versus virtual versus possible or potential. Uh, a song. I'm going to li- go listen to a song. Songs. X, Y, and Z. The potentiality of all the songs I can listen to exist. Uh, the actual would be uh, the series of notes that are going to be played. But uh, the notes and how they are played and who plays them, those interper- those things as they collapse into each other, as well as the social play of all of those things, determines the virtual. And the virtual is actually very real in the sense that it is Zizek's example, and it's a great fucking example. Uh, it's, it's what helped me to understand it. Um, the song Beautiful Thing, My Favorite Things, uh, which is a nursery rhyme little kids know. You've heard women sing it, and one of my favorite jazz artists of all time. It's one of the, his most famous songs. These are all uh, virtual because they are how actual things interact, but inside of how they deal with each other and how we perceive them despite being completely real. Uh, it's it's It doesn't matter, Varun. It's a great example and helped me understand it. You got uh, it from that european graduate school lecture online it's a it's a great one uh the the uh it's it's an old one but it's it's a good example i I don't think he goes that in depth into it though (laughs) no no he doesn't go super in depth but it's uh there's a an example of uh 10 11 years ago uh one of the greatest violin players in the world uh, took a Stradivarius, the single most expensive Stradivarius that had ever existed on the planet, and he played in a subway. And he played the music. 
he was playing that night, identically in every single way, but he played it on a subway platform. And eight people stopped to listen to him, including a three-year-old. Uh, there's no difference. The actuals of it are not different except for maybe the location, but the virtual of all of these actuals and how they played together changed what what the meaning of it was. In one case, that night, he'd be playing for $500 uh, a, a person. You'd be there to listen to him specifically, whereas in the subway, it changed the perception of what he was doing so drastically that few people stopped, despite being literally the same thing. Um, it's that's that to me is where the virtual versus potential versus actual hits. And it's the other side I just want to make sure we do is uh, make sure we say that Lacan's uh, imaginary, real, all of that, not applicable here. We're talking about something completely different. Yeah. So, but- so I'd like to, I'd like to interject that, uh, you know, the, the place where this is explained the best is in Bergson, Bergsonism by Deleuze. And what he, what he gets at there, first of all, he gets the virtual from Bergson. And, uh, and, and the contrast that he makes is between four terms, not three terms, four terms. So the, the, the uh, virtual is uh, contrast to the actual. And the real is contrast to the possible. And these four things kind of form a cycle. And so basically the cycle goes something like this, that you have dispositions or uh, tendencies within within something that, that would evolve. And then you have the actualization of that thing. So the actualization... In the DNA and the possible combinations of the DNA, there are a lot of possibilities that that are are very concrete, uh, and and they're called these uh, virtual tendencies or dispositions to to become something. And then when when that thing actualizes, then you get the particular thing with its properties uh, in the world, and that. That's different, he says, from the relationship between, say, possibilities and reality, because uh, possibilities are uh, all of the different ways something could be, and and realities have to do with the um, uh, you know something being designated as real uh, in the world, Great and stuff. so. And so, and so there, there seems to be like a cycle that he talks about in Bergsonism, which goes from the virtual to the actual, to the real, to the possible, back to the virtual. Right. I, I don't want to go all the way and talk about Kant and who's wrote now. That goes, and and that's really what difference in repetition is all about. And, but uh, so coming to this idea of the virtual, how they describe Oedipus as being virtual. The, the thing is that I'm seeing the body without organs. As, and, and, and this is what they, in A Thousand and Plateaus, I, I know we shouldn't be mixing up books together, but on their chapter of the body without organs in A Thousand Plateaus, they say that the body without organs is the virtual to a certain degree. And so if Oedipus is recorded on the body without organs, it's, it's, it, 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 the, the, the Oedipus can always come in at any time. That's what they mean by the by, by the virtual. It's always there and it's, it's interacting on the side and it enters in from 
from a sort of potential to a certain degree. It's, well, it's, I mean, they're, the way that they talk about it is that basically the body without organs is the moment the potential collapses to the virtual. That's the that collapse is essentially the forming of the body without organs, unless I'm wrong, Varun. Yeah, that, that, so I'm not so confident on this. That's my biggest problem. That's fair. I just want to say that uh, what Varun said, I think, is right in the sense that if you do the evolution backwards and then you run forward again, you get somewhere else. That's the idea that the potentials or the tendencies of the virtual have expressed themselves in a different way as it gets actualized, say, by evolution. and what survives and what doesn't in action in, uh, in evolution. And uh, I think at this point, I'm going to actually push forward so we can finish up on time. We have a last paragraph that I'm going to read, and then we'll do final notes. And uh, as always, I, we're just going to push everyone, try to join us tomorrow. Uh, it's the same time, same place. Uh, and it is a review that is a lot more open. No one's muted. Everyone's asking vocal questions because it's, uh, as you can tell, uh, the goal of this is for us to try to do explanations today and then tomorrow to actually have the debate and discussion to help uh, sort of build out these ideas. Uh, because uh, Varun and a handful of others are very solid at their understandings, and some of us, myself, and I would disagree with that. <laughs> well, that's it's very humble. Um, but I think uh, tomorrow is going to be a lot of fun. It's going to be a lot of fun for discussions. But let me read. Um, yet this is what psychoanalysis does when it closets itself in Oedipus and determines its progressions and regressions in terms of Oedipus or even in relationship to it. <clears throat> Thus the idea of pre-Oedipal regression, by means of which one sometimes attempts to characterize psychosis. It is like a Cartesian devil. Uh, the reference they give, a Cartesian devil, bottle imp, small hollow glass figure used in physics. Immersed in a closed vessel of water, it can be made to rise or sink by varying pressure, and hence the amount of water in the figure, the Cartesian devil. Uh, the regressions and progressions are only made are made only within the artificially closed vessel of Oedipus, and in reality depend on the state of forces that is changing, yet always actual and contemporary, with an Oedipal desiring production. Desiring production has solely an actual existence. Progressions and regressions are merely the effectuations of a virtuality that is always fulfilled as perfectly as it can be by virtue of the sta states of desire. Rarely have psychiatrists and psychoanalysts been able to establish a really inspired direct relationship with either child or adult schizophrenics. Gisela Pankow and Bruno Bettelheim, apologies for pronunciation, break new ground in this area by the force of their theory and the, er and the efficacy of their therapy. It is not by chance that both of them call into question the notion of regression, taking the example of the bodily cares administered to the schizophrenic, massages, baths, swathings. Gisela Panko asks if it is a matter of reaching the invalid at the point of his regression, invalid at the point of his regression, in order to give him indirect symbolic satisfactions that would allow him to resume a progression, to take up a progressive pace. It is not at all a question, she says, of administering care that the schizophrenic presumably did not receive when he was a baby. It is a question of giving the patient tactile and other bodily sensations that lead him to recognition of the limits of his body. It is a question of the recognition of an unconscious desire and not of this desire's satisfaction. 
Recognizing the desire is tantamount to setting desiring production back into motion on the body without organs, in the very place to which the schizo had retreated in order to silence and suffocate this production. This recognition of desire, this position of desire, this sign refers to an order of real and actual productivity that is not to be confused with an indirect or symbolic satisfaction, and that, in its stops and as in its starts, is a distinct, is as distinct from a pre-Oedipal regression as from a progressive restoration of Oedipus. Um, the, there's a line that's really, uh, really gets to me personally. Recognizing the desire is tantamount to setting desiring production back into motion on the body without organs, in the very place the schizo had retreated, in order to silence and suffocate the production. But the way she does that is, uh, rec is recognizing the unconscious desire, not satisfying it, not fighting for its satisfaction or even trying to interpret what that is. I really like that. Anyone have any final thoughts on this uh, paragraph? The chapter, maybe. Well, I, I, I just like to say that uh, when we're talking about these uh, four states, you know, the virtual and the actual, the real, and the uh, possible, you know, and you look back at Kant, you know, Kant is talking about the possibilities of experience, the a priori possibilities of experience. And uh, Deleuze and Guattari want to talk about the real, you know, real experience through production, through, op yeah. through operation. And I, I, I think the key word there is all real experience. That they're looking for the for, for, for what what are the transcendental conditions like where Kant was looking for the transcendental condition of possible experience and you know that that sets him one step above just logical you know what 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 uh, formal logic gives us the losing lottery we're going all the way into actual real experience what are the what are the transcendental conditions of all real experience so I think you're, you're spot on there yeah so so th that's in the background that contrast is in the background. But then they're then they're concentrating on the relationship between the virtual and the actual, which is one of individuation, like you get in Simondon, where where you you get the individuals coming up, you know, say from the uh, as they develop, right? And 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 the same individual would develop differently in different circumstances, and so this 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 movement from the virtual to the actual takes place in the context of this contrast between the possible and the real. <laughs>